0: You're listening to Meaningful, a podcast about people who give a damn and do something about it. My name is Sophia Born, and this season I'm sharing with you eight stories of inspiring young people who advance social change in their day-to-day lives. It's been a minute, hasn't it? The last few months were a bit of a chaotic blur, but I am so excited to be back on top of my schedule and to be bringing you even more stories of young people advancing social change in the most incredible ways. So before we begin, I have an exciting announcement to make. On July 1st, I'm launching my very own monthly newsletter called Theories of Change. It's jam-packed with useful and inspirational goodness, and if you enjoy listening to Meaningful, you will definitely enjoy Theories of Change. To subscribe, head over to my website, Sophia, that's S-O-F-Y-A, doeswords.com slash newsletter. All right, let's dive in. My guest today is Mausin Mohitin the founder and CEO of MeWe International. Mosin's work, centered on harnessing the power of storytelling, can be described in many ways. Community building, peace building, social development, empowerment. At its core though, Me, We is a movement that builds deep human connections between people facing some of the most difficult social challenges around the world so that they can overcome these together and not alone.
1: I was a Fulbright Scholar in Morocco for about a year. I went to Morocco wanting to engage in creative therapies, arts therapies, music therapies, with street children and migrant youth. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I, I had a baseline for what I knew, kind of what I wanted to do and the impact I wanted to have, but I didn't know every day, I didn't feel qualified every day to do what I was doing. I just knew that I had to do something and to and to learn to be comfortable in that uncomfortable like situation. And I realized that some of the therapies was having more impact for these young people than whatever it was they were learning in school, if they even went to school or whatever it is they were learning in some formal education program. And that kind of sparked my interest to take what I had learned and take what I was doing in Morocco with more than 300 migrant street children and take it to other places. I did it in, in South Africa, um, did it in Kashmir. And, and over the years, I kept doing it in different country contexts and started to see like this is actually having uh, behavioral and attitudinal impacts on the young person's mindset. It wasn't a program. It turned into a mindset for young people to have a space where they can discover themselves, make mistakes, ask questions, and to exercise the muscles of empathy and creative collaboration with their peers around them. And I worked at the United Nations in strategic communications for several years right after grad school, and the data and the stories of what was happening in Syria at the time were coming in, and because I worked in communications, like, I, you know, I was looking at it every day, um, and it made me physically ill to see what was happening that time. You know, that was seven years, like, you know, the conflict's been on for more than seven years now. So um, I was in a period of transition from the UN to UNICEF, and I made a decision to leave and to pilot Miwi in Zatari refugee camp in Jordan because I felt like what I had learned and built over the last previous years could support youth in some way there. And thanks to the support of, at that time, the UN Special Envoy youth envoy, Ahmed Handawi. he just connected me to someone in, in UNFPA, I talked to them, the German government gave me a little bit of starting money, and I put my own savings in, and I left for like two, three months, and just piloted it, and just got my hands dirty, and and made mistakes, and learned, and worked with these young Syrian refugees through an organization called QuestScope, who is still the local implementing partner for MeWe Syria in Zatar refugee camp. It's grown a lot since then. Um, And at that time, all I had was one camera, one tiny Panasonic pistol grip camera, uh, two SD cards, not that much money at all, and didn't have a full plan. And that one camera with 30 young people has turned into this program that is now in eight cities in three countries and by May is going to reach a thousand more young refugees and is on track to grow. So it started with a total happy accident and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of discomfort. But step by step, it's evolved into this big kind of international thing now, so it's kind of exciting.
0: Mohsen's excitement about MiWi and the impact that the project can bring to at-risk communities around the world has been shared by many. Just last year, Mohsen's work collected awards from the MIT at the Solve Innovation Competition and from OpenIDO. It has also received support from the German government, the U.S. Department of State, Ford Foundation, and several UN agencies. Behind me, We success is its unique methodology. But before we get into that, let's take a quick detour to where it all began.
1: You know, I think when I when I look at the time that I was going through everything and taking all of these scary steps and doing risky things, and I didn't I didn't know why I was doing it, but looking back on it, I have a better idea. Um, I was born in a very peculiar situation because uh, I'm the first American born in my family. So I was born in Maryland, but my family's from this pretty far out, beautiful, tragic, but resilient place called Kashmir. So throughout my whole life, I felt very uh, in between two very polar opposite worlds. Maryland, you know, very safe, you know, I could get whatever I wanted in terms of support. But then spending three, four months out of every year since I was born in Kashmir, where I saw my own community and my own blood. And at the time in the 90s, Kashmir was going through heavy, heavy conflict between the Indian paramilitary forces and security forces and um, militants that were coming from Pakistan, as well as um, what they call freedom fighters that were in Kashmir. So it was a very um, rocky time. Uh, and seeing the impact of that on on my family, who I love and all my uncles and aunts, and my cousins who are my age and friends, just seeing the the how that impacted their lives, their school, their family relationships um their emotions, their mental health, being in between these two worlds kind of forced me to realize whether I wanted to or not, I was forced into a communi- in a communications role, <laughs> um especially after nine eleven where if I would go from the u s to Kashmir. I would constantly be asked questions in Kashmir about why you know, what in their thinking, why is the US trying to kill Muslims or, you know, trying to dominate the Muslim world? And then I would come back to here to the States and they I'd get asked similar questions, why why are they trying to kill us? Why do they hate us so much? And I always felt in like a uh, the need for storytelling and communications was central Um, and whether I liked it or not, I was kind of forced into a position of trying to reconcile these two polar opposite worlds. And when I was like 17, I took a month off high school and I went by myself to Kashmir and did a storytelling project where, um, I was interviewing victims of the conflict and the war who were all Kashmiris in Srinagar. And, uh, I realized that one, I was the the, the the messages were powerful, right? The people, the brave brothers and sisters that I got to interview were opening up about a lot of things and the content was powerful. But the actual thing that interested me was the process. I saw that the process of active listening and interviewing was really cathartic. It was a form of therapy for the people I was interviewing. Um, and to me, that was more powerful than the output or you know the content, the finished product the process of storytelling and interpersonal communications to me, um, is all about building empathy, building community, building change, um, if it's used properly, if it's understood properly. So that was, that was one instance. And then when I was really young, um, my, my aunt Aisha was, uh, unfortunately a victim of the violence there and she was murdered. And, uh, when we went back for the funeral and, and things when, after she passed away, Um, again, I saw firsthand the impact of conflict and war um, and injustice when her son is looking across the street, you know, my cousin's looking across the street and he sees just the military bunkers and the guns poking out. And these guys are walking around freely, more freely than he is in his own land. Um, And the helplessness and humiliation that he was forced to endure and how that impacted his life the narrative of his life was at risk because the external world stole something from him and that forced him into a position of helplessness and humiliation that millions of young people are facing today all over the world. And when we internalize that helplessness and humiliation, that affects our, 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 our body chemistry, it affects our physiology, it affects our heart rate, our blood pressure, it affects our emotions, it affects the choices we make and how we interact and how we choose to walk. You know, walk this life and, and walk our streets and engage with our communities. So there's a myriad, of, you know, impacts, ripple effects that come from those things. So, you know, for me, like uh, the heartbeat of what I do is Kashmir because um, Kashmir taught me. You know, I grew up in America, but I feel like I really grew up in Kashmir because of my brave and beautiful family and community there that opened my eyes to things that um, that were being hidden, actually. So that kind of put me on this human rights communications path from a very young age There's so many organizations and groups that are approaching storytelling in a very like superficial way It's like, okay, give a camera to this marginalized young person and let them take a few pictures or give them a piece of paper and let them draw or let them speak to us about their most tragic event so that we can take it back and show people. It's super transactional. The reason human species have survived as long as we have is because of our ability to simulate futures in our minds is because of our ability to um, have cognitive flexibility and to take what we imagine and make it real in the world and to communicate it with others so that we can build social networks around us to achieve and build things and systems. Communications and storytelling is at the heart of why our species has survived and it's turned into this, it's been reduced to this very transactional thing. MiWi's approach to storytelling is not about The product. It's not about the output. It's about the process of storytelling as a vehicle for self-awareness, for building resiliency, for exercising the muscles of empathy, of creative collaboration, of community building. Again, because any anthropologist or scientist will tell you our species has survived because our brain was built and humans were built to be social animals. And what makes a social animal is the ability to communicate and is the ability to imagine and simulate futures and build those into the real world through teamwork, through creative collaboration. That's what makes it special. Um, and taking that and making it accessible to a young person who has been forced to see their the narrative of their lives as a consequence instead of a choice, um, that's essential if we want to have sustainable peace and development. A young person has to go from an arrested narrative to, uh, you know, a narrative of self-choice and resilience. Because the hypothesis of my organization and methodology, MiWi, is an arrested narrative will translate to an arrested development for that individual person. And an arrested development for an individual person, you multiply that by a thousand, ten thousand, a million and millions. That means arrested development for a society and a community. So how can we equip young people to... Um, have self-awareness to understand how words and visuals and communications impacts our brain chemistry and our physiology and our body and our choices and our mental health so that they can reauthor their lives and make the future one you know bring the future one step closer to their present. how can we do that and 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 that's what me we sees in the power of storytelling and communications is central to community so it's really a, a community community building, peace building tool. It's a tool that by accident we discovered through working with brave Syrian changemakers around the world. They were organically using the storytelling methodology, Miwi, as a vehicle for mental health and psychosocial support, peer-to-peer. We didn't know, we didn't create Miwi from the beginning to be that. It turned into that. And that's where this whole new level opened up about how narrative therapy and logotherapy and pro-social network building and goal setting are things that can support the, the mental health, psychosocial support, and social and emotional development of a young person, particularly at-risk youth, migrant youth, displaced youth, uh, refugees. Mm.
0: It's also a huge gap in formal education, isn't it? If you think about it, this is not something that's available through formal schooling um, or especially through the kind of schooling refugee youth typically have access to.
1: Yeah, it, it's a huge If we think about it generally, there's a huge blind spot in education systems around the world, which we now know were built upon the factory system, the industrial revolution, the traditional algorithm of education, which the education system still operates under, is memorize, repeat, score, maybe get a job, and that's it. That might have been sufficient for a period of time, but that is insufficient for a world where the only constant is disruption and the only constant is change. Anyone, any scientist will tell you now. Looking forward to the to the further evolution of the of the next industrial revolution, and also how human beings are evolving, the skills of network building, the skills of communication, the skills of interpersonal communications, and uh, resilience building, and messaging, and ideas formulation, imaginative thinking, these are the skills that need to be strengthened for the resilience of not just a young person, but for that community and society and country. Connecting the mind and the heart with the breath, that should be the purpose of education. And the way the education systems are built right now, it's not about connecting the mind and the heart and the breath. It's about uh, memorizing and regurgitating whatever it is that you've memorized so that you can further outdated status quo systems that already aren't working for most people. It's only working for a few. So that's one side of it. And then when you look at education programs or youth interventions for at-risk youth, they are not addressing the mental health and psychosocial support needs of at-risk youth, of the affected community. And that's because one, there's a fear of irresponsibly um, doing things when it comes to mental health and psychosocial support. There's a fear with that, that dangerous things might come from that. And two, there's this attitude that young people aren't equipped to really understand concepts of neuroscience and mental health and psychosocial support whereas our approach with me we is we can decentralize these concepts and tools and make them accessible for the affected communities that these things are meant to serve anyway we're in a situation right now at least in in Syria where whether you're 15 or 10 or you're a 40-year-old parent or a 60-year-old grandmother you are forced into a position where you have to provide some type of mental health psychosocial support to the person next to you whether it's your sibling or aunt or grandparent parent or friend how can we make mental health, psychosocial support, make concepts that previously are only in the hands of a few scientists and doctors, make these things accessible and actionable and relevant for a young person so that they can localize it, contextualize it, and then disperse it in their, in their home, in their school, in their community. That's another approach that you know, I think MeWe is trying to fill that gap as well.
0: MeWe methodology is context-specific and highly versatile. In addition to refugee context, Mosin and his team have piloted the initiative in Ecuador on a project related to sexual and gender-based violence, in Tajikistan as part of a project tackling violent extremism, and in Mexico with relation to transparency and corruption issues. The methodology is also unique because it is constantly created and recreated with direct involvement of the communities it is designed
1: to support. It's completely co-created and led by refugee youth. It is not a program where um, a foreign entity comes in. We show a PowerPoint. They do a couple exercises for a week, and then we leave. It's an iterative, living, breathing organism that is constantly refining upon itself. It's constantly um, learning from the the facilitators who are replicating it. The facilitators of Miwi are from the affected community, which is why it works. The the replicators and facilitators are themselves Syrian refugees who are given the trust and agency. To entrepreneur and localize their own versions of the program whether it's in a refugee camp or in an urban refugee setting so i think that's one of the the unique aspects of me um so I, and and the way that it works is we we identify local community building organizations and partners who are interested in filling those gaps that you and i just talked about when it comes to mental health psychosocial support needs of youth when it comes to media literacy and how media literacy can be used as a tool for social and emotional learning and promoting nonviolent forms of communication and things like that. So we identify those organizations that are interested in that type of methodology and thinking. We work with the local organization to select a number of existing facilitators that they already work with who are from the affected community. And then we do like a six day training of trainers session. So it's a training of trainers model where they experience the program as beneficiaries and then on the last day, They come up with their own local action plan for how they would entrepreneur and implement the program in their context, because they are the experts, not me and not my team. They are the experts. They're given the trust and agency to then execute and implement that local action plan over a period of six to eight months. Um, And in those six to eight months, they're replicating the methodology to adolescent youth, so 14, 15 to 24, 25 years old, in the refugee camps as well as urban refugee settings. And what happens is we're cultivating safe spaces where young people for the first time are literally and figuratively reauthoring their futures, reauthoring the narrative of their lives. Um, They're building relationships with their peers. Um, They're forming pro-social networks. They're enhancing their media literacy skills like as a hard skill. So they're doing video blogging, um, narrative exercises, collaborative storytelling projects, making films, making audio projects. Photo essays. So they're getting those hardcore media literacy skills, but they're combining it with these social and emotional learning skills when it comes to leadership, when it comes to exercising empathy, self awareness, resilience. So we're we're taking concepts of neuroscience and mental health and psychosocial support and syncing it with media literacy, with communications exercises. And what ends up happening is is we have these hubs. Now we would have reached a 1,000 youth in the last year uh, to 16 months where young people have hundreds and hundreds of pieces of content um, that can inform the NGO's work, that can inform caregivers and parents in the community, that can inform um, teachers and in schools in the community, that can inform the policy and practice of how we engage with those youth. Stories are not just stories, they're also, it's also data. It's data that can inform policy and practice. Um, and then for the young person, They're formulating ideas and re-engaging with the community after having been displaced and been being through so much disruption. They're starting to reclaim some control of their mind and how their mind connects with their body and what they can do with that connection once that happens.
0: The positive impact of the Meet We methodology is not only anecdotal. It is supported by hard and growing evidence base, something Mohsen has put a lot of effort into developing.
1: One of the things that we've been doing and trying to improve upon, which I think is important for any social entrepreneur or, or someone that's trying to work in this field is data and measurement, right? So we've been building out a psychometric scale. That's a pre and post assessment that's measuring for attitudinal and behavioral changes when it comes to empathy, when it comes to, um, being able to identify one's emotions and feelings when it comes to leadership capacities. Um, and, and, uh, things like goal setting capacities and things like that. So being able to measure the impact of that is really interesting and for the last year and a half we've been piloting different versions of the scale and we have a lot more work to do with that scale but we're seeing trends. Like we're seeing that there are growth points when it comes to perceived stress and situational control, when it comes to emotion regulation, when it comes to leadership capacities. These are critical ingredients for uh, the education system to take more seriously if they want the education system to actually have mileage and impact on a young person, it has to be able to measure and understand the emotion regulation capacities of a young person, the resilience capacities of a young person, the leadership capacities of a young person. So that's one level where we're hoping we can have some impact with the data. But the other one is for the young person themselves to be able to see and map how much they're they're capable of changing, how much they're capable of growth. When you're in a situation of displacement and trauma, your cognitive abilities for goal setting for imaginative thinking, for for taking control of your own day-to-day choices. It, it shrinks if you don't exercise those muscles. And what we're showing and hopefully proving is that our brains can change, right? And neuroscientists always say, there's Dr. Amon who did this analysis of 80,000 brain scans, right? He, they, he said in his TED talk, the one thing they learned from that was that brains can change. We can change our brains and exercise certain regions of our brains so that we can be more in control of our thoughts and how our brains connect with our bodies and influence our choices. So being able to feel and understand our own abilities for change, I think, is the most transformational thing about We is that we're doing that. We're opening up that realization and discovery for young people, because if they don't have that discovery or that self-awareness, no educational intervention you do No youth intervention you do is going to work or have any long-lasting impact if it doesn't start from me and then connect to we. That's the whole philosophy of me, we. And having it replicated by youth leaders from the affected community makes it more credible. It makes it very flexible. It builds in needs assessment mechanisms for us to constantly learn from the youth leaders who are replicating it. We get new ideas and new ways to do exercises because the young leaders that are doing it in the refugee camps and in urban refugee settings so it's like a feedback mechanism. It's not a top down thing. It's not a transactional thing. It's a living, breathing organism that is codependent with the affected community. It's co led with the affected community.
0: What is the business model behind Me we International? How do you plan to sustain it?
1: I, I hate the term business model, but but the way that the way that we we work is, you know, we um, we get grants from governments and, and foundations, or we compete for grants from governments and foundations on you know whether it's migrant issues or, or informal education programs or education emergencies. And we essentially are like a funder to local organizations and partners that are replicating MiWi, and, and that's how things happen. But increasingly, the, the way that it's going to pan out is that with greater integration of MiWi with existing partners and organizations, um, there will be, it'll essentially be some type of licensing model where the program is fully integrated into local community building organizations and NGOs. And there's some type of licensing fee or model where, um, we can keep going and innovating and being updated and tr- new trainings can happen and new technologies can be built into it. But right now it's very much based on, you know, grants, donations, you know, private foundations and things like that.
0: What have been the biggest challenges you face with Miwi
1: Let me start with the broader lens of it. Um, because what we're doing is innovative because what we're doing is unique um there isn't a precedent for it so funders and organizations and critics are very quick to disregard it at least they were in the past so that that's one level like being able to effectively communicate and have evidence for what we do is a challenge because we're already speaking to the allies that we need you know a lot of them are used to like traditional programs traditional language, um, traditional metrics. So battling that communications wall is really a challenge, but we're, we're figuring out how to do that. The other aspect to it, the deeper level aspect to it, the leaders and the creatives of the program and the network are themselves from the affected community. That means that they're not just running a program, they are themselves refugees, they are themselves displaced. They are themselves dealing with trauma and loss and and fear and anxiety every day so when i was most recently in the with our syrian brothers and sisters and me we overseas i just got back recently and the first thing i noticed was self-care there is a huge challenge and a need to enhance the capacities of our leaders and our youth with self-care how are we taking care of ourselves in the process of doing the work that we do, mentally and physically? Um, This this is a huge blind spot in the humanitarian sector, this is a huge blind spot in the education sector for teachers, because we're often putting, the people that are doing the work and leading peace-building efforts or community-building efforts or humanitarian efforts, they're putting themselves last because that's how we are programmed to be. But if we do that, there start these things start to come up when our health starts to go, mental health, physical health, well-being. And if that starts to happen, we can't do our jobs effectively, and we can't last long in doing the work that we do, and particularly when the programs are run by Syrian youth who are themselves dealing with heavy things every day already. That's another layer of complexity. So the self-care component and building self-care into the program and equipping and enhancing the self-care um, tactics of our network, of the facilitators, of humanitarian workers and teachers, I think is extremely important. That's a big challenge. The geopolitics of the region too, it's very frustrating and I don't have an answer to it. I mean, what's happening with US involvement, Turkish involvement, Russian involvement, Syrian involvement, I mean, these the Security Council's lack of ability to do anything substantial, these things are really, they're affecting people's mental health and people's physical security. These things that are discussed in the UN at that table are not just words. Those words that come out and that don't have any teeth, that means that there's tens of thousands, if not millions of people's health, bodies, physical security, heartbeats are affected by that. And as, as someone that's running a program related to that general issue that we're facing in a geopolitical context, that impacts how we do our work because it, it makes things more unstable. Um, It makes things scary. It makes things very frustrating. So that's one aspect of a challenge. I would say another challenge is how can we improve the engagement of women and girls in these types of programs? Um one of the things we're learning is that we have about 60% of our team are Syrian refugee women and girls who are replicating the program which is awesome but there are constant challenges when it comes to girls feeling safe and comfortable to actually express their ideas for obviously there's cultural reasons for that but then there's also you know other reasons for that too and that's a constant challenge we're trying to to fight because we want we want to enhance spaces for girls and women to express their ideas and express their needs and, and step into their own stories so that they can step into their own voice for change. And then for me, outside of the more important aspects of the people that I serve, is for me personally, um, you know, I think it's important to know it's okay to feel unqualified to run your own thing or to make change. I feel that every day. And that's a dangerous thing because if you're not comfortable with that, you can burn out. And a lot of people in my position and field, they burn out because they feel unqualified in every day and high anxiety every day and high urgency every day. And if you live every day like that in a state of hyper vigilance, hyper doubt, hyper uncertainty, hyper unknowns, um, that affects your mental and physical health again. So for me right now, a challenge is, you know, now that I've taken a leap a bigger leap now than I have before in previous years to have me we as its own organization and company and a lot of people are depending on it now like how do I keep that alive at the same time keeping myself alive keeping myself healthy so that I can you know better serve and make better choices um, and I think a lot of heads of their own organizations they, they struggle with that and, I, and a lot of us I think aren't honest about that aspect of things it's like there's a stigma with talking about it. Um, but that, that's like a personal challenge that I'm trying to trying to figure out.
0: Before Mohsen set out on his own earlier this year to run and further develop Miwi International, he was the director of storytelling at Ashoka Youth Ventures. If you think that this role sounds too good to be true, you're not too far off. Before Mohsen joined Ashoka, this role didn't exist. He invented it for himself. So naturally, I wanted to understand how that was possible.
1: Well, initially it happened because I spent a lot of years in places where I didn't have that. So I definitely think there inevitably, there has to be years put in not having that (laughs) at all and understanding the blind spots that exist with places and systems and interventions Um, and just observing and listening like a lot of my my first internship was at Amnesty International um, when I was in high school and I was basically stapling things together and it was unpaid and then my next thing was a part-time fellowship I got right out of uh, undergrad barely making any money and doing program assistant work no creative freedom no no one really cared what I had to say no one's going to give you confidence for yourself, you know what I mean? No one's going to give you a title. We have to give ourselves permission to make it ourselves. No one's going to hand that to us. So there has to be a degree of observing and listening and really knowing what you want to do and and seeing what the blind spots are and seeing if you can effectively connect your passion with what those blind spots are and contribute something unique and then having confidence. Like once I went and got my Fulbright scholarship and I was in Morocco, and I was making mistakes and messing up and learning and making some impact here and there, I started to build my confidence and started to realize that I had a unique thing that I could contribute. And then after that, I still didn't have confidence because I was working at organizations that were telling me what to do and how to do it as if they had all the answers. And I realized that nobody has all the answers. Nobody knows what they're doing. No organization, institution, or system is fully qualified to do what they're doing. So I'm on an equal level as them. Why should I not take more charge and lead in my own narrative, in my own future? If everyone doesn't know what they're doing, but they act like they do, why not just be humble and admit that I don't know what I'm doing, but I have a passion and a resolve and an idea that I think could work and just go for it. At the UN, of course, I had no freedom to do those things, but I was looking for opportunities to go overseas in my vacation time, in my breaks, where I could start to build the pilot out a bit more start to test things out a bit more, start to increase my own confidence in what I was starting to build. We get few windows of opportunity in life when it comes down to it. Um, So when I was at the UN and going in between the UN and UNICEF, there was a window of opportunity to, what am I going to do in these few months? Well, I could go to Zatar refugee camp and pilot my idea, or I could keep looking for, you know, keep doing what I'm currently doing at the UN, right? And so I had to take a leap, you know. There's a level of being comfortable being uncomfortable. I think that's the most powerful thing we can do Is if you can smile in the face of uncertainty and darkness and unknown, if you can be comfortable in an uncomfortable world with uncomfortable people that don't believe in you or that make you feel a lot of self-doubt, if you can be comfortable in that, you're disempowering all of the impossibilities. You're disempowering all the people that are telling you you can't do this, you can't do that. You're disempowering your own fears and insecurities by being comfortable with them. So that enabled me to just gradually go into Ashoka and be like, you know what, I wanna create my own title. And Ashoka happened to be a wonderful space where they even are cool with that. Most organizations are not. But because I had the qualifications and I had some type of vision, my, my boss was cool with that. And, and that's how it grew. And then I had to, again, take a decision for myself. No one made it for me to be like, okay, well now here's another window of opportunity. Am I gonna take we this thing that I've sacrificed everything for, blood, sweat, tears, my own physical security, am I gonna take this thing somewhere bigger, make it its own thing? Can I do it? Do I have what it takes? Or do I listen to my fears and insecurities and the need for stability and safety and all that? Do I let those things run my life for me and just stay where I am? And I decided to take another step into the unknown and, and that's how I got to where I am now. My definition of success would be one where success is not anchored to or defined by an opposite axis of failure. I think my definition of success is one where success doesn't exist and failure doesn't exist. It's just being present and being able to be a good person that's putting some type of good back into the world. Whether it's small or big, whether it's being a good father to my kids or a good husband to my wife, or doing me we and and supporting a young person in a very dark place to just discover something about themselves, to help them live another day, to help them try something new, you know, um, I hate the word success and I hate the word failure, so um success to me is uh that just word doesn't exist for me in my vocabulary. Or at least I'm trying to work against that because I think, that, again, that's the type of conditioning and mentality that all of us were forced to go through in our education. And the way that we make our choices, the way that we raise our kids, the way that companies market to people, the way that people think of themselves in these words and labels is all an illusion. And it's it's a misdirection. So I think, you know, we have to, we have to change our language and, and free ourselves from these binary black and white words, you know. Um, just connecting, you know, connecting the mind and the heart, man, that that's what success is for me, whether it's, again, whether you're a parent or you're in college or trying to start your own company, how are you connecting your mind with your heart? That's it. Are you able to do that on a day to day basis, even if it's for 10 minutes a day, or are you able to make a living doing it? It doesn't matter. Um, if you can just do it, I think that's, that's success.
0: What advice would you give to someone who has an idea, but maybe doesn't know where to start with it yet?
1: I would say embrace the unknown and embrace the chaos. You know what I mean? Like don't don't be a, don't let your self doubt or your lack of resources or money or time dictate how you do what you do. If you have something you want to do, ask yourself why you want to do it for you. Like why do you really want to do this? And is anyone else already doing it? And if they are, what are some gaps? And if there are gaps, do you have a passion or something that you really believe in that could contribute to filling that gap? That's unique. And if so or if not, who can you collaborate with that does have that additional expertise to help you make it real? And then just do it. Don't wait for a grant to come in or a job to come in for you to do what you want to do. Like in my case, I put my own savings. You know, I asked people to give me a little money, family members and things, and I was able to travel and make mistakes. The more mistakes you can make and the more you fail, the more resilient your idea becomes and the more resilient you become because you will encounter people that don't believe in you and that will try and get you to stop what you're doing. That's inevitable. So knowing why you do what you do, building the alliances around you, and then just going for it. Don't wait for someone to give you permission. Just do it. That's what I did, you know, for better or for worse. Um, That's what I did.
0: Listening to me, and thanks to Mosin for sharing his story so vibrantly and candidly. As always, there's a ton of useful details and resources in show notes on my website, so make sure to check those out if you're keen to learn more about Mosin and Me We International.